you want me to do that for you, Tim? Go on, then. Okay. There we are. <laughs> Umbrella 360 podcasts. Um, you're coming live. We've got Tim Burrows interviewing Adam Ferrier and Margie Reid from Thinkerbell. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to this special edition of the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows, coming to you from Sydney's Hilton Hotel in the midst of Mumbrella 360. Coming up later, we have our exclusive first listen, well, unless you're in the room, for the Mumbrella Wheel of Truth session in which uh, we threw some tricky questions at our panellists. But first, joining me in Mumbrella's hastily constructed press room today, we have uh, Adam Ferrier, co-founder of Thinkerbell. Hello. And Margie Reed, managing partner at Thinkerbell. Welcome both. Hello and thank you. So thanks very much for joining us, guys. Um, now, I was just looking along. It's pretty much one year this month, Adam, since you launched Thinkerbell. S- almost exactly six months since you joined Margie. Mm-hmm. Um Chalk and cheese. The first six months to the second six months is quite bizarre. I imagine the second six months are a lot more organised. A lot more organised, a lot smoother, and a lot more, um, in quotes, professional. So, yeah, I, I suppose the opening question to both of you, how's business? It's fun. It's um, We're having a lot of fun doing it. Obviously, a lot of hard work starting up a business, but working with the guys and the team, it's been um, a really good journey. Like We've learned a lot and we keep pivoting and growing and learning along the way. Margie, you and Adam, I'll come to you after this. Um, uh, you joined from OMD. You've, you spent pretty much all of your career with media agencies, including a big chunk at OMD. Thinkabell, I suppose their their heartland will be more as a creative agency. How are you finding that transition? It's been an interesting transition and working with the guys, um, I feel like I've learned a lot. Absolutely. In the last six months, I mean, obviously I've brought a lot to the agency, but collectively I think we've all grown together in terms of how do we bring creativity, how do we bring media, how do we bring brand um, and then technology and consumer all together. And I think that's where that fun and that growing has absolutely happened. Um, and I think working with you know Jim Cousin, Adam across that, but then even the broader team, we all bring such a unique offering and, and part of ourselves. And Adam, you uh, think about it's a chance for you to be part of a startup again, which you were with Naked Australia. You then joined um, uh, Cummins and Partners, which um, which obviously was already an established thing. Is it a bit sort of back to the future to be at a startup again? Yeah, it kind of is a little bit. It feels um, it feels fresh yet familiar, um, and I think that's kind of nice that um, you've kind of got established players doing a startup. It kind of gives you. Um, lots of enthusiasm, lots of fun, lots of we can do whatever we want. But also we've got some heads on shoulders who um, kind of know the lay of the land and, and have built up kind of good skills and all that kind of stuff. So it kind of feels like, the you know, in some ways, the best of both worlds. And you're slightly unusual in that one of your sort of founding investment partners, for want of a better phrase, is, uh, is PwC. Um, what difference does that actually make to... Either the culture or the business. The the, the, the PwC thing, um, we we describe them as friends with benefits, and that's exactly what it feels like. So we've got a kind of, um, if you like, a um, uh, I was going to say a big brother, but I mean that in a kind of a maternal sense, not a uh, Orwellian sense. Um, and they've been they're just fantastic uh, friends to have um, in terms of 
giving us access to um, kind of growing up uh, big kind of brand of business problems to tackle. Um, and it's just, it just feels nice having um, to be part of the emerging trend of kind of consultancies and agencies working more together and solving uh, problems more holistically and also just injecting a bit of creativity into a world otherwise kind of which has been previously a bit more having a rational kind of efficiency approach and now approaching certain a new type of problems with a bit more creativity. Well, Margie, to build on that, I was in um, Singapore last week talking to a couple of kind of the APAC CEOs who get to see the whole region. And there seems to be this real fascination of people looking at Australia where there's almost a view that there there's this sort of the global Petri dish right now is Australia where you've got PwC, they're doing the CMO advisory, they're investing in you guys. You've got, you know, the monkeys obviously haven't been picked up by Accenture. You've got Deloitte doing their thing. Everybody is doing things in this space that they aren't necessarily doing in the rest of the world. Um, what have we learned so far? It's funny because to Adam's point, I think culturally we work together with PwC, but there's no – you know, there's a big brother element in a, in, a, in a support mechanism, but we also are incredibly independent. And I think talking to a few people around here today, the fear of consultancy versus how it's actually able to enhance and how we can work together and how do you keep that relationship and the journey of from big business problems through to, you know, everything that we do, um, I think that there's an element of how do we actually embrace this rather than the fear that it, it's creating. Um, I reckon I, for, for me it feels like 10 years ago it was kind of like the Wild West of media with the advent of the internet and social. It now feels like it's the Wild West of creativity where it kind of feels like a creativity is being applied to a much broader palette of different types of problems. And I think the, the, the merging of consultancies and agencies together is part of that. So I think that's kind of really interesting. And I think it's kind of nice that Melbourne in particular is the home of that because uh, Melbourne's got a nice, strong kind of creative kind of vibe. Um, and so it kind of feels befitting that that's where kind of business and creativity is kind of merging more. And this might be an unfair question um, and it might be about just high expectations. It feels to me like, I haven't yet seen Thinkerbell's big defining piece of work or piece of thinking. Have I missed something or is it still to come? Um, I didn't realise this was going to be such an antagonistic, horrible, nasty interview. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, sort of. Um, oh, look, we've been going for a year. We're incredibly proud of the work we've just done for 13Cavs. We're proud of the work we've done for... Um, for the Red Cross and Beat Loneliness. We've been working with the ABC and kind of done some work there. Uh, there's a few other um, brands that we've done some good things with, but I think I, I'm, I'm not after the one big kind of thing that you're going to see. We're after kind of an ongoing kind of um, a whole lot of proof points of, of different types of business problems to have solved through, you know, good mm. creative thinking. Um and so I think that'll just emerge more and more as, as the journey continues. Are you guys as, as big as you would have hoped to be at this point? We're this is going to sound funny. Size doesn't matter. But I think for us, yes, we've grown at a bigger rate. We're having to look for another office at the moment. Um, we've already outgrown our space. So I think for us, yeah, we're absolutely um, growing at a pace that we hadn't thought um, was possible. But to answer and to follow on from the question – I think we've been doing so much work around our brands with our clients that, you know, to Adam's presentation just now, 
that's what we've been working through. And I think over the next couple of months, you'll see a lot of that come to life. And we'll talk to Adam's presentation in a, in a moment because there are a couple of sort of fascinating points in, in that. Um, just on the subject of Adam, I always wonder, because I've, I've observed him with some interest over the last, oh gosh, 10, 10 years, 12 years now, sort of with, with his time in Naked. He strikes me the sort of person who will be both fascinating and incredibly annoying to work with yeah. um on, you know honest I, and i mean both of those things is that true i was going to insert the word irritating for you but um i held back no he's amazing his mind is um 10 but, paces ahead but at the same time keeping him on check is one of those tasks but you know we're having a lot of fun doing it and i think we've both learned a lot from each other yeah, but in that little dissection of me, fascinating, irritating, annoying, there wasn't a compliment in that. There wasn't a positive fascinating side. Is. Fascinating. fascinating is. Fascinating is a big compliment. Okay. All right, a compliment. thank you. No, if I was to do my most 10 interesting people in media, you would be on the list. Oh, thank you. But I think you might also be on the list of 10, I don't know because I don't know, but 10 most irritating colleagues might be on the list. Uh, and uh, I say irritating in an endearing way. I, that this does sound No, no, no. I, I, I am amazed that people choose to spend time with me at all so i i just thank everyone for even listening to this i'm sure i'm irritating uh, you right but, now but honestly what are you like to work with difficult honestly. I, I honestly i'm difficult he loses I'm, everything i'm i'm difficult because i'm disheveled i'm and i'm difficult because i um i like to assert a point of view um and sometimes i don't listen as much as i should um although i'm anyway so i so i'm difficult but i'm also um, I think I'm creative and lateral and I also am obsessed with – I'm really interested in people and marketing and so I can bring a lot of knowledge as well, I think. The topic you spoke to at Mumbrella 360 was human-centred design and the flaws of it, which I think if I, if I, if I had to sum it up in my simplistic way would be – every category effectively solves the same problem so all brands end up looking the same. And I, I watched you present one thing where you put the slides up of a number of brands and how much they've gone from their original sort of font to a very, very similar font. And I cringed a little because I felt that Mumbrella might yeah. be in that department as well. I think Mumbrella could be. I think I, I preferred the old look of Mumbrella. I think it was more distinctive and stood out a lot more. Um, I think you're, you're the one that assets. I made in Word in yeah, ten minutes. That's right, but I think I think Mumbrella's versus the one that a brilliant professional slaved <laughs> over for months. I think the distinct. I think what made. It, I think you may have lost a little bit by smoothing out the rough edges. I think you may have become a little bit more homogenised. But I'm sure, you know, your business is doing well. But we're going all right. Yeah. Thank you for your concern. Um, so human centred design. Um, yeah. Good or bad for the industry. Um, I think it's mis slightly misleading. I think it's taking its – I think it's up its own arts a little bit and um, forgetting what it's in the business of doing. Human-centred design is in the business of helping uh, businesses build brands at the end of the day. And if you forget that or if you don't, if you don't realise or understand you're in that business, then you're probably um, not part of the solution. And so I think sometimes um, – People aren't honest enough about it. Like it reminds me of um, in psychology, we never spoke about the fact that we're in, in, the, in the job of changing people's behaviour. As a clinical psychologist, people come to a psychologist to have their behaviour changed and you work with them to change it. 
um, businesses come to us to build brands, not to necessarily understand consumers in and of itself. We want to understand people to use that information to help build a brand and build a business, and that's kind of what we're in the business of doing. Marga, you, you you come at this from at least a couple of perspectives, having having seen things through a media lens, through a creative agency lens. What do clients actually want at the moment? What what are they finding hard? I think there's a couple of things. It is about what does their brand stand for and how does that then go through their entire business, um, not just start and stop in the marketing team and then through to their suppliers and their partners and how does it look all the way through and then what does data play in that role and what part does it inform versus affect and impact out the other way. Adam, if you were a marketer, what would you be thinking about? What would be sort of occupying your time? Yeah, if I was a marketer, I'd be thinking about how to ensure everybody was on the same page as the terms of um, what it is. that Everyone had a kind of a very, very clear North Star as to, as to what was driving all of their decisions. And um, again, it, it just coming back to that human-centred design thing, if you understand, if you ask, if you ask somebody in that world, what's your North Star? They'll say our North Star is to try to understand what makes it easier for the consumer, whereas the North Star, from my understanding, should really always be about what's going to build um, the brand and build value into that brand and then and then rolling that out across all, you know, whatever, however else you need to roll that through. Um, the agency that I'm, you know, a simple-minded trade press journalist who can generally hold one thought about an agency and what they stand for in in the head so it might be you know zenith the roi agency or you know i know wave maker arguing you know where the where the people who understand the marketing funnel the one thing that thinkabell stands for what is it scientific inquiry meets creativity which we like to call measured magic yes we rehearse that answer <laughs> but um measured magic you know like everybody wants to find new opportunities and how to deliver on those and create a bit of creativity that's a bit magical but you know it has to be accountable it has to be measured it has to be considered um and so that's what mm-hmm. we kind of we, we kind of try to reconcile that trade-off now um we're I guess about four months out from the uh, M6, the Marketing Science Conference, which you you curate and we put on. Uh, what can people look forward to for M6 this year? Uh, um, it's looking very, very – it's exciting in terms of – can I say who's speaking um, or not? You, you can, it depends what you've said to them, really. So uh, uh, you, you can We've say got, as much as, you're, as you have confirmed, I cool. suppose. We've got Mr um, – uh, Mark Ritson is going to be um, screaming obscenities from the stage and hopefully some wisdom as well. And we've also got... That's a little Mumbrella cast exclusive. <laughs> we've also got the producer of Australia's most successful um, reality TV show presenting. And the reason why he's presenting is there is still no better uh, behaviour change vehicle in Australia than reality TV. Um, and so I won't say um, where they're from or what the, the show is, but it's super, you know, it's the thing and so i know and i'm excited yeah and i'm actually fat and he and this person's very uh interesting smart person and so it'll be interesting to hear what he has to say um and then there's a uh, there's a raft of other um good speakers as well fabulous now we are very nearly out of time um perhaps both of you tell me one thing you've learned at mumbrella 360 this week um i've learned to pay more attention to getting the technology 
organised before you present. Uh, right. Sorry, because <laughs> I haven't had a time to actually hear as, as much content as I'd like. Margie, what have you learned? I sat in the ubiquity misattribution and it was absolutely fascinating. Um, it was just in terms of the scientific side of it and then also the gut side of it. And I think they even you know, called out the polarising part of that and how you have to sometimes go with your instincts and then there's data to back it up. And look, a massively complex topic. But what I thought was fascinating was just how busy that room was as well. Yeah. There's a lot of people who want to talk about attribution modelling. Oh, and of, uh, just one of the other things, of the 180 uh, segments, only three segments that you're at Mumbrella 360 have the word brand in the title. Just back to that whole point about getting brand back on the map. And Is that just, too many or too few? Well, I don't know. It depends on what you're into. Adam and Margie, thank you very much. Thanks so much. God bless. Welcome to the Wheel of Truth, our final session for Mumbrella 360. And this will also make up this week's Mumbrella cast as well. So hello, listeners. So um, about nine months ago, I was sitting at the end of the day in the BB King Blues Club in New York for a session at Advertising Week Conference, which was organized. That session was organized by DigiDay and had this brilliant idea for a session called Wheel of Truth, which was a lot of fun. And they came out carrying glasses of champagne. And I thought, I'm going to steal that format. Uh, so here we are. Um, now, I will introduce you to our panellists very shortly, but firstly, let me explain how the Wheel of Truth works. So uh, over on the other side of the stage from me, you will notice the debonair Richard Reed, who will help sprinkle us some television glamour upon this session. Richard will be spinning the wheel and helping moderate questions from the room if there's time as well. Now, you will see that our wheel, which I sort of visualised will be a little bit bigger. Um, going to give it a spin? Yeah, yeah. Give, it, give it a demonstration and when I spin, say, And when Richard. I spin it, I'm going to go, wheel of truth. <laughs> and okay, you will right. see that it will, it will end on a number. The wheel contains 14 numbers, and each number corresponds to a tough question <laughs> that we're going to be challenging our panel to tell you the truth about. So, let me introduce our truth tellers. First, starting at the other end for me here, waving the flag for the media makers, we have Kim Portrait. She is... (laughs) Kim is the first boss of TV industry body Think TV, which comes after a career in marketing with big brands like Unilever, Pepsi-Cola, Optus, AMP and Tourism Australia. Please welcome Kim. Next along is Kieran Moore, who is CEO of WPP's Public Relations and Public Affairs Operation in Australia, including Ogilvy, Howarth and Pulse. She is, without question, Australia's most respected public relations executive. Please welcome Kieran. Next, we have Brent Smart, who moved client side just over a year ago as CMO of insurance giant IAG. Prior to that, Brent had a massive agency career, including CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi in New York and managing director of one of the world's most creative, creative agencies, Colenso BBDO in Auckland. Please welcome Brent. 
And speaking of Colenso, Nick Garrett followed in Brent's footsteps at Colenso before taking the helm of Clemenger BBDO Melbourne three years ago. He took on the daunting task of modernising the structure of what was already recognised as one of the world's great agencies late last year. They added Clemenger Sydney to Nick's portfolio too, and he's currently on the shortlist for Mumbrella's Agency Leader of the Year. Please welcome Nick. And next to me comes James Greet, whose latest venture is strategy consultancy Clear Thinking. Not only does James have a distinguished career running some great media agencies, including OMD, Mindshare and Icon, but even better, he's currently not working for any of the big holding companies, so he'll be able to tell us where all of the bodies are buried. Please welcome James. <laughs> Yay! And in the spirit of Wheel of Truth, I'm going to tell you what James just said to me as everyone was coming in and we were sitting on the stage looking at everyone. He said, is this what it feels like to be royal? (laughs) (laughs) So let's get to it. Richard, would you please spin the wheel? The Wheel of Truth. Number 13. Lucky 13. Here's a good one. I think we'll start. Actually, we'll start with Kim on this one. How much do you deserve to be paid? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, girl. More. <laughs> well, I think we could ask everybody in the room, and I think that we all know the answer, which is obviously more. Um, look, I'm I'm pretty pragmatic. I think I'm uh, deserve to be paid what someone's prepared to pay for me. Essentially, um, I know that sounds uh, that that sounds silly, um, but it's a hard question. It's a really hard question. I mean, a lot of the, I mean, a lot of our time spent on incentivizing and KPIing a lot of our teams, uh, to make sure that they've got some skin in the game. Um, but what I find is that most people who are really in the industry and in for a long time and who really love it are kind of in there for all the other reasons that are not necessarily financial. You know, back to some of the points the guys made earlier about, you know, being part of a creative or dynamic team and making a contribution. Um, but, you know, after two more glasses of champagne, you can ask me that question and I could <laughs> probably Kim, answer honestly. Me, I'll get you to build on it a bit more as well. Me? <laughs> Jesus. Lots um, more. You know, it's, it, it's, a re- it's a tough question because as people, you, well, I typically undervalue because you're never really good at selling yourself. You can sort of do that for lots of – like I could tell you what all these guys should get paid, but I'm not particularly good at telling you what I should. So – and rather than sounding less wanky and abstract, maybe the best way to figure that out is not market rate or maybe it's a percentage of the contribution you make. Like that would work really well for me because I'm in television. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> it might not work so well for everybody else. But, yeah, look, you know, it's it's the last question I ask when I'm looking at a new opportunity. It's literally the last. It can be a showstopper, certainly, but you don't kind of walk in and go, well, I want another 50 bucks or I'm not coming to talk to you. You go, what's the opportunity? What's the challenge? So it's it's more about kind of the excitement of what you're doing. And, yes, I need to, you know, buy beans and pineapples and all the rest of it for the family, but it's not really the motivator. So, Brent, when, at what <clears throat> stage in the conversation about your current role did you talk about remuneration? I feel like him, like, quite late. I mean, um, for me... The whole reason I went client side was uh, I got sick of running agencies and asking clients to do things that they should have been doing and they kept saying no. So I'm mm. like, well, what if I could be the guy that says yes? <laughs> so the motivation for me was all about making great work happen. I, I, honestly, that's why I did it. And and um, it's kind of interesting for me. I find myself, I'm, I'm off topic, but I'll come back. But um, 
I find myself an insurance company. I was really worried it would be the most restrictive, constrained environment for a guy. I mean, look at me. Um, but but it's it's so liberating for me to to be a CMO and to be able to actually make stuff happen. Uh, I've never been more excited. So and, and again, I'm like Kim. The money for me has never been what's driven me um, in this business. It's it's always been about the work. Nick, would you do it for half the salary for the love of it? Potentially. I've had I'm 20 years in. I've never asked for a pay rise in my whole career. Um, and I feel very lucky every day I wake up when I've got something I'm excited about and I'm looking forward to. Mm. I have my mantra, which I learned from a mutual friend of ours, Nick Worthington. If you don't have three things you're excited about right in front of you, then get out of your job. Mm. I think if you have them, and he's a great, he's the greatest, you know, creative person I've worked with. I think you'd same, say the same. same yeah. Um, I think that lives, that should be true for everyone. Uh, in terms of salaries and life and inflation and complexity, when I'm looking at a staff list now of over 400 people and I'm wondering how do I put them at finite resources against the people that I think I absolutely have to back, I back curiosity, passion, and willing over experience because I think if someone's willing to put their head through a wall for you, they may not be that experienced, they may make a few mistakes, but you can trust them with everything. Uh, you just got to look after them on that journey. And I think there are a lot of people in every part of our world that want to be paid well but don't want accountability if you are prepared to make tough calls mm. and it's heartbreaking sometimes um, but you take it on the chin and you do it yourself mm. um, I think that's the thing don't ask someone to do something you wouldn't do yourself mm. um, and you look around they're the people that you've got to look after because they're the ones that define your culture and are worth the weight in gold now James you've also worked as a headhunter as well are people actually good at asking what they were um by and large, no. Certainly the ones that you think are best equipped to realise uh, the role at hand, both technically and culturally, will focus on that conversation uh, um, at, uh, at the end. But by and large as well, most people are really uncomfortable uh, talking about uh, money as, uh, as well. Um, but I think, you know, we've all made kind of mistakes in our career. The only time I ever made a mistake in terms of where I chose to go was when I chose that role based upon the money that was being offered, which or was the potential that? remuneration. <laughs> which job was that? Uh, <laughs> it was my, my first job in advertising, actually, 30 years ago. I'm lying. Um, <laughs> no, so it, it wasn't was to, your it was, short stint to Icon. No, then. not at all. Um, it was to go and do a role where the uh, where it was clearly danger money. Yeah. Um, and I very soon quickly found out why. But what's also really interesting, I think, is someone touched upon it here earlier, as the client agency relationship seeks to move towards more value-based uh, modeling as opposed to fees based upon head hours and percentages and so forth because they're probably not as transparent and client, as clients want them to be. I think it will be interesting to see how that trickles down to how the individuals working on that business are then paid and whether their contribution to, I guess, uh, the agency's contribution on that fee-based, or sorry, that value-based project will follow suit as well. I mean, uh, at Clean Thinking, the way we structured uh, the fee-based model, and we're not selling Clean Thinking, it was just we, we gave a lot of think, uh, thought about this, as you imagine, uh, was well, the first thing is if a client asks us to do something, we say, so what is the purpose of this financially? Because if there's value in doing it, it's going to have an impact on the P&L somewhere. 
either you're going to save money by doing it this way or you're going to make more money. And we want our contribution to be recognised by an element of that. We might come back to that point more widely a little bit later, depending on the questions. Just before I ask Richard to spin the wheel, um, Kim, you wanted to come back in. I had a question for James uh, in his... um in his previous life as a headhunter, are blokes better at asking for money than girls? Oh, is that wrong? Can I not ask that? No, it's just the question of the room. <laughs> what? <laughs> Maybe we should have... Is anybody interested in finding that out? All the girls, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or is um, that just a lie? It's... Why, why do you obviously kind of think that might be the case? Why well, is that? Is that based upon the fact that you're very good at asking for... Uh... No, no, no. It's because it's a conversation... Well, it's a conversation that I hear when professional women get together. Mm. And the conversation goes... Some, and I'm way off topic now. Sorry, Tim, you can shut me down. Um, there is a view amongst some professional women that blokes are better at asking for cash and better at stepping into roles that they're potentially not as qualified for, whereas women will, and this again is the theory. It's, it's been proven. There's research that proves this. So she so, says. So she says. <laughs> well, there is. Yeah, so I'm just, I'm just curious. It's a, it's a, right. I think it's a fabulous question. I'll get you question. to answer it fairly quickly, James. So <laughs> yeah, so, so very, uh, very quickly, uh, yes, they probably are because I think they're a lot more considered in their approach to big conversations and big subjects like that Ouch. than well, guys. Mm. Right. Well, you they think about it more? Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah, guys tend to be a lot more kind of emotional in, in stuff. They look, tend to be more ego-driven, whereas in my experience, uh, females tend to be a lot more considered uh, and less uh, ego-focused. Interesting. Thank you. Mm. Richard, back to you. Wheel of truth. Four. Question number four. Does the media and marketing does the media and marketing industry have a me too issue to deal with and what needs to be done? Who wants to go at that one first? I, I, can I, I will, I will, I will, as one of the women on the panel. Um, I think that the marketing and media industry has a massive diversity and inclusion issue. Um, whether that breaks down into the subset of, you know, Me Too and, you know, gender disparity and gender and sexual harassment, um, I've never seen personally. Um, and I work for a very big organisation in this market. Um, and I've also worked in, you know, abroad and in the UK and in Europe. And I, I didn't see, but what I've, what I've seen consistently over the 30 years is that diversity and inclusion is a bigger challenge. And I think if we were serious about addressing you know, the gender disparity and inequality, uh, whether it relates to pay or promotion or whatever it might be, by looking at it holistically around diversity and inclusion, I think we'd all be in much, much better shape. We've got a lot of white people on this stage, for example. So I think we could be a little bit um, better at hiring people that don't look like us. James, you were trying to come in. Uh, look, I suppose uh, my first observation when I saw the question is, and I know why it's said, but why is it even a question? Uh, it's a fact. I think that's what I'd say. I think the, the, the issue is, so what is the world going to do about it? Um, I know the world probably wants to do a lot of stuff about it, but there are certain restrictions here in Australia that stop people speaking out, uh, and fear is one of it. I think our industry has arguably always been full of bullies. Uh, it's been dominated by bullying. You know, this is uh, a very extreme sort of example of that. 
But I think what will happen is the usual uh, white middle-aged suspects that have run power bases over the last sort of 15, 20 years, those power bases have been eroded. And that removes, therefore, the fear of being shut out of an industry because you've spoken up about something. So it might take longer here. I hope it doesn't. Uh, but change will undoubtedly come. Nick, I think I saw you nodding at that. Yeah, I, I think I agree with everything James said. It's not a question. It's a fact. It's there. It's real. I'm 43 years old. I moved back to Australia in 99. And what I saw in 99 is very different to what I see in 2018. I think uh, I speak for a lot of people of my generation and the people that are running agencies, the people that are running clients, the people that are running organizations, there's a, a whole generation that's gone and left the industry. And I'm hoping that a, a lot younger, fresher, broader, more diverse thinkers have started to take over and aren't going to stand for that shit. It's disgusting and it does need to be stand out. I think there's a danger of looking backwards and trying to correct some wrongs 10, 15 years ago. And there's some people that will get caught in the crosshairs. But there are people in our industry, like every one of them, that have behaved appallingly and it's not good enough. I think we should be having a far bigger and more heated discussion of what we're all going to do collectively yeah. moving forward because yeah. it can't, it cannot. I think it has decreased and it needs to just be stamped out. Kim, I'm going to come to you and then to Brian. Um, I agree with James, uh, sadly. Um, I suppose for me the focus on that question is what can I do? So I, I like the idea that the industry gets involved and wants to change things, but in the end every day... I'm the person responsible for my own behavior. So how can I create a safe environment? You know, I mentor people. I say to people, if you are uncomfortable or fearful, come to me. You know, there's always a way to get a message to somebody that needs a message given to them. So part of that is I don't think you have to be a white 50-year-old man running an agency to be accountable and responsible. I think it's just as likely that you can be a 22-year-old brand manager. If you see bad behaviour, find someone safe in your organisation and speak to them. And, look, you know, Mumbrella have done great work in making sure that some of this stuff surfaces. If there's no one in your business that you can trust, go and talk to somebody in the press. You know, like there's there's ways that if every single one of us in this room over the course of the next year just made a commitment that when you see that behaviour, you will stop it, you will offer support to the person that's suffering it, and you will take positive action to make sure that that doesn't happen to that person again. You know, it's a multiplier effect. We'll get there much faster if we just accept our own obligations. Mm. Brad? Yeah, I, I kind of agree with some of what Nick was saying about um, there's a danger that it can be quite backward looking, and there's no doubt we have to right the wrongs and fix it. Yeah. I, I'm more interested in the positive future conversation about how do we fix the pay gap? How do we fix representation in senior management? Um, I'm really proud. It's really interesting now that I don't work in the marketing, in the, in the media industry, the advertising industry. I work in an insurance company. You know, you'd think an insurance company would be the most 50-year-old white guy company you could be in. We, in my division, Customer Labs, we fixed the pay gap last year and it's very doable. You just have to want to do it. So we said we've got X amount of budget that we've got for pay rises and incentives. Let's make sure we fix the pay gap first, and then we'll worry about, you know, how we how we fix high performers and, and whatever else. Let's just fix the pay gap. We wanted to do it. We did it. You can do it. You just have to want to do it. Yeah. Look, we could spend the whole afternoon talking about this because it's a really big topic, but yeah. there are a lot of other big topics as well. Uh, Richard, back to you. We're going to get some truth. <laughs> 14. so true, right? What I did right there. <laughs> Perfect. It's very well planned. Is the communications industry a force for good or bad? 
Who I'll, go, I'll take it. Yeah. Um, good communications, force for good. Bad communications, <laughs> fucking pollution is my view of the world, and there's too much bad communication. Yep. I think I can put some heat on that. This is an amazing country, and I don't know how many are Aussies here or now lovers of Australia have come from other countries. We seriously fucking underperform creatively, mm. and we're doing our best work on small clients or small projects, and it is not good enough. Brent's words are absolutely right about pollution. You look at our work, it's short-term, it's unimaginative, it's not disruptive, it's not standing out, and it's not doing enough societally, and it should have a greater impact commercially. And if you're really, really interesting, you will have a commercial impact. And, you know, I think the world's going through a crisis of confidence. It's not just Australia, but Australia needs to do more brilliant work. We're a, we're a reasonably small country with a small workforce with small barriers to get to great work. We've got people like this man who buy creativity on the marketing side, and I'm sure there's brilliant clients here, and I've got some I know in the audience who buy great work. But, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if there was like 20 things in the industry next year we are all sort of giddy with excitement because they were so good, and there aren't right now. I kind of think it's like, it's exactly as Brent said, you know, it's like a baseball bat, isn't it? You can do good things with a baseball bat. You can do really <laughs> unfortunate things with a baseball bat. Um, I think, I think what's holding us back in just being good all the time, though, um, isn't a skill shortage as such. You know, we're inherently, we were born a creative pioneering environment. You go back 40, 60,000 years and no one's still figured out how we created a boomerang, right? Uh, in our latter years, we sort of innovated through necessity more than anything else. You know, you look at the businesses that we created here, you know, Qantas, a little airline out sort of the back of far northern Queensland. Look at its, its growth and its kind of fame globally, et cetera. And all this innovation in terms of, uh, um, uh, technical innovation, Google Maps, Cochlear and so on and so forth. But then somewhere we got really lazy. Okay. And it was just good enough. And I think the last 10 years have probably been, not just in the creative sort of industry, but industry at large, somewhere we've just got really, really lazy because the sun's shining, we're digging heaps of money out the ground, and we don't have to worry about the future. And, but that's when we're at our best, when our backs are up against the wall and we're about to slide off the economic growth scale. Brent, I will come back to you, but I'm going to go come to Kim and Kieran first. And that's where we'll lean into it, and the communications <laughs> industry has to put itself at the front of that. Um, so I'm a crap judge of good and bad. I'll put that out there straight away. I don't think I can really tell the difference. Typically, no, well, typically stuff I really like everyone else hates and the stuff that I really hate everybody else likes. So I'm a pretty crap judge at that. But I think there's a, a better question. So good or bad is kind of like a report card, right? Like are we doing well or not doing well? And I actually don't think that that's the right measure for us. I think, you know, accountants don't sit around waxing lyrically aware whether they're a force for good or a force for bad. I think we've got our head up our asses and that what we should be thinking about is are we what we've got on the tin? So my good's your bad, your bad's my good. At the end of the day, who cares? As long as, I mean, as long as it's not really terrible, um, like bad things, but if it's just sort of general, like maybe that's the wrong question. And, you know, I don't think anybody is sitting around worrying about whether we're good or bad. I think they're worrying about whether we work. Okay, Kieran, then Brent, then I know, we'll I was go just to the going to, again. I think you should, because you were hot on that topic. No, no, I was just going to find it really surprising, um, especially from you. You won 52 lines at Cannes last year. Australia was third in the world at Cannes. 
I don't know if it's an Australian problem. I worked in America for eight years. Jesus. Mm. The amount of shit that comes out of that country. I mean, you know, so, so I, 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 don't, I don't know if it's an Australian thing. I actually think at our best, Australia is, is, is we can take on the world and we can have these incredibly, um, like, Graham and, 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 like, the lamb work. And there's some work out of Australia that's just so... But we can do great and amazing. Yeah. But I think pound for pound, we, we, we do really, and New Zealand, where I worked for five years, does even better than us for, you know, if you want to talk about New Zealand's love per capita, they win that all the time. (laughs) But, but I don't know. I I, I don't know if it's an Australian thing. I actually think we're pretty good. And and again, you've come off the best cam we've ever had. I I, I don't know why we sort of think Australia is not creative enough. I don't know. Kevin, I want to know what you think. Um, I, I think I think I think we do some great work, and I think we do some appalling work. And I think a lot of it's got to do with the calibre of the people that are paying our bills. Mm. So it's fantastic, to, you know, to have an ex agency leading agency person in as CMO. That doesn't happen very often. So, you know, in the spirit of you know uh, keeping the work going and all of those sorts of things, you know, we do compromise, and that's why I think. Um, and we don't want to compromise, but we just have to compromise. Either we're lacked by the imagination of our clients or the budget. Um, I don't think it's necessarily to do with the quality of the people that are coming up with the ideas. Um, I think what we, what is really powerful when we do get it right is when we when we do uh, work around purpose or we, when we're tapping mm. into something that people are really unhappy about, whether it's you know how badly asylum seekers or refugees are being treated or how, whatever it might be. That's that's when you see the real power of of how we can change the needle and things. Whether there's purpose behind it and there's a real social cause behind it. That's when I think we really shine but it's you know it's shit in and shit out you get a shit brief and you've got a, a client that doesn't want to make any um you know bold decisions then you know you but, can be you can be you can challenge but you can also be paralyzed but you're really talking about whether creativity is good or bad not whether communications because yeah. i don't think anyone's going to go yep creativity is bad I, but, I, but that's not the that question the no i think it's got to move you and, and it can move you without being Insanely creative. It can be strategic. It can tap into you emotionally. Yeah, okay. Nick has been trying to get in, so I'm going to come to Nick. I I just want to close because I think we've we've merged two questions. Mm. First one is the communications industry, a force for good or bad. It has to be good, right? None of you are here to do bad. We're not here to do bad. So can we just like, is it for good or bad? Good. 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 Right? Done. Can we have we have an opportunity to be more creative and do more interesting things for our um Punters, yeah, we do. So let's let's give it a nudge. Okay, well, let's keep moving. Yeah, really. um, I, I think <laughs> we've, um, we've probably spent a fortune renting these throwable microphones, and we haven't used them at all for the whole oh. conference. So I think this is time to discover Richard's throwing skills. Has anyone skills. got a question? Um, who who, who wants to ask questions? Question Come in your way, fast. Okay, I'm just going to throw it this way, and whoever catches it. I see a hand it. over this way, Richard. Oh, that, I'm supposed to th- I'm going to do an underhand. Here you go. Oh, oh pretty good. <laughs> and if you could pretty please good. tell us like, who you are and where you're from, please. Hello, I'm Kim. I'm from Orchard. And my question is, is there an age limit or expiry dates in um, creative industry? I hope not. You look at the old people. You look at the old people. You yeah, we're on the 50-plus side of the panel, just I'm putting not. it out there. <laughs> well, I um, yeah, no, I, no, I think the testimony to no, big no. Yeah. No. 
There's now, a limit. I think um, commitment, passion, and hard work. Let me just challenge you on that. There, why? Why aren't there many people over the age of fifty in agencies then? Oh, because it's exhausting. Yeah, because you get if tired. You can, if you can last at fifty, it's a miracle. But, yeah. But, but if you look at, I mean, yeah, look at I mean, other creative true. industries, and look at, uh, you know, the creativity that's coming from like Paul Smith in his seventies. It's coming from, you know, some film like, you know. Ridley Scott in his seventies, and you know, creativity doesn't stop. And I think if you look beyond our industry, yeah, people do some of their best work. I mean, Bourdain was forty-four before he was discovered as a writer. I mean, um, what a tragic loss he is. I mean, I, I just think there is no age limit on creativity. I think there is a a real. It's hard to keep going in advertising agencies. I, I think it's really hard, and I, I wouldn't want to be doing. It, I'm I agree. I, mean, I think you're more likely to get tired <laughs> than you are to get old. I think there's a bit of a statute of limitations on the amount of um, uh, stuff you have to deal with. That probably, as you get a bit older, you think, you know, probably, uh, probably other things I could be doing. Um, but um, no, I, I, I'm with everyone else on the panel. I think. I think there's it's, a. Dis- I think I'm just there's got the dis- right attitude. So I think there's a, a distinct difference between um, is there an age limit on people in agencies versus their capability to contribute to solving clients' business issues and whichever way creativity needs to be deployed. I think, I think people of a certain age and beyond are increasingly going to find the energy taken to run and keep an old-school agency model going is, is just too hard. Okay. That was such a. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you short slightly. That was such a good question from the floor. I think we'll invite another. And another one. One. Here we I'll go. Hand Ready? It's side. nice and soft, so don't worry. <laughs> ah. Um, my question relates to uh, the capability you think that agencies have to actually deliver commercial results for clients. Um, and you know, we know there's a lot of capability from a creative perspective. But does that always translate commercially? And do you think there's inherent capability there? Let's go to a marketer first of all for that one. <laughs> oh, I think I think um, for me, there's two capabilities that uh, agencies have that are uh, incredibly lacking in corporates and incredibly lacking in the big consultancies. Uh, and, and, and yeah, I'm going to say creativity, ideas, yep. proper ideas, um, ideas that you. Uh, can say in a tweet, not in a hundred slides of PowerPoint. Uh, ideas that move people, ideas that um, that you know everyone gets excited about inside a company. They're, they're, they're such rare things, they're fragile things, they're really hard to find. Agencies still know how to do it, um, and it's an incredible, incredible skill that every marketer should be prepared to pay a lot of money for, because you're not going to get it. In my experience, you're not going to get it anywhere else. You're still not going to get it inside your organisation. The second thing, which I think is massively underrated in agencies is the ability to simplify. And I grew up in, in advertising when we used to have to do lots of posters and we used to have to say things in 30 seconds. And the founder of Colenso, Roger McDonnell, who's one of my heroes, I'll never forget we were pitching the Bank of New Zealand and the, the, the pitch briefing took them three hours to take us through about 200 slides of PowerPoint. And Roger has got this great husky Kiwi accent. He says, now let me get this straight. You want me to say in 30 seconds what just took you three hours to tell me? Which is, but I think that skill of, that skill of, of being able to distill the very complicated, and especially in an in in industry like mine, like in insurance or in banking or in telcos, just to distill it down to the, to, to the, the essence of, of what's really going to matter to a, to a human being, to find those beautiful universal insights, like you're not you and you're hungry, or, or like it's, it's just, it's such a beautiful skill that I've never seen anywhere else. 
um, be developed like it is in agencies. And I just hope it's still being developed in agencies like it was when I grew up in agencies because I, I'm thankful every day that I grew up in agencies and I learned those skills. It makes me such a better marketer. And I wouldn't have learned it if I grew up client side. I wouldn't have learned it if I grew up at a consultancy. Uh, and I think, I think, I don't know, I just think agencies don't stop and realize the beautiful skills they have inside, inside, you know. That was uh, a great question and a great answer. answer. <laughs> and I think we'll move on to the next topic so that we, uh, cover some ground. If Richard, if you would like to. Ah, oh, wheel. Wheel of truth. Two. Question number two. When should an agency lie to a client? (laughs) (laughs) Nick should take that one. (laughs) All the time. Look, um, I don't think you should ever lie. You shouldn't lie to anyone. Um, It's not a good thing. And you know, if you, there was two words that we used at Colenso, which I've taken with me. Um, It's about love and trust. If you trust someone, you you know, there you create love. And if you love them, you will trust them. And in a relationship, this is creative partner to agency lead to planner to everyone it's a it's a cultural thing and it's a cultural clients you're going to go through horrifically hard times a client has to respect the fact that you might not have the answer or you might not have the solution at the time they want it if they love and trust you they'll accept buy me time to do something have we said has anybody in this room not given half a truth or bent around something to get to a, a great a better outcome yeah i have i've shown confidence um in moments of extreme pressure and adversity. So it's okay to bullshit a client, not lie to a client. I'm saying it's, oh, it's okay to be confident when you're not and showing that you are going to get to a solution. But to lie is just not cool. It's not cool. You're never going to get to a great place. And if, you, if you're finding yourself that you have to lie to someone, you're already fucked and the relationship's yeah. destroyed. And I think you'd, yeah. if you look at your personal life, you'd probably say the same is true, I hope. I think the other thing about, uh, I agree with everyone, you just, you never lie ever. One, because you always get caught. Mm. So that's the first thing. So you, you know, you get caught sooner or later. But I think the other thing is it's easy for senior people with lots of experience to say that. But for, certainly for me telling everybody in this room, um, you've got to work in a company where it's okay to make mistakes and to come clean and put your hand up and say when you've made a mistake. When I was first started at Ogilvy PR a few years ago, um, there wasn't a culture of always telling the truth and people were hiding and they weren't always doing the right thing. And sure enough, what was a tiny little white lie turned into this monumental, yeah. you know, greatest, you know, catastrophe. Um, so having an agency or a team environment where you're allowed to, you know, and we created a thing called My Biggest Fuck Up and the deal was that you had to stand up and talk about when you made a mistake, namely it was when it, when you hadn't been quite truthful uh, and then talk about what you learnt from that experience and then share it. So there was a vulnerability with that. Um, and I think that <clears throat> certainly in the in the 30 or so years I've been in agencies, there's a lot more vulnerability and humility now in terms of the people, the people, um, the way they act and that's a good thing. I just... I want to say one thing. Most powerful words in the world is I don't know. And an agency's job is not to know everything and have every answer every time. And when you're presenting the most audacious work or the most audacious thinking in the world, client says, how do you know it's going to work? You don't. And we can go through research, we can go through a process, or how do you know the treehouse uh, or Graham is going to work or how are you going to make it? You don't. You go, but give me a week, give me a month, give me a day, give me six weeks. Let's work this out together. Um, and that shared responsibility and accountability, if you're in an environment like that, you're never going to lie. You shouldn't have to lie, but it goes both ways. Now, let me have just trust. Get some feedback from the room. The clock is telling me we're nearly out of time. Hands up if you'd like to go another 10 minutes. Oh, wow. Thank you. Mm. And if you do have to be somewhere, we won't judge you if you do have to <laughs> away. Um, let's go for the wheel. There we go. 
Ooh. Well, there we go. <laughs> Have we done six? <laughs> We've done six. Did we do seven? We didn't do seven. 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 <laughs> Where do you draw the line? James, I don't think I came to you on the last question. Where do I draw the line? <laughs> um, so in the spirit of not lying um, and telling the truth, um, I think you, assuming you are an honest person full of integrity, you draw the line that anything you wouldn't be prepared to do yourself, uh, have someone do for you, um, and ultimately that I think that really depends, does it not, on your own makeup and your own sense of sort of like values and what you consider a priority. And I think it's interesting that question earlier about uh, should you ever lie? Because I think that word has probably begun to mean different things over the last 30 years. I'd say that, yes, fine, uh, truth well told and all that stuff and all the mantras in advertising. I think you go back 30, 40 years the industry was brilliant at lying about stuff because <laughs> it was brilliant at making people want stuff and believe it gave them special virtues and powers. Whereas now, in a post-truth age, the focus on the truth is greater than it's ever been before. And I guess it's how agencies deal with the future while still somehow retaining the essence of what made them great over the last 30 years and keep going, even though I think that word, a lie, and therefore, where do you draw the line, has probably changed and, and is consistently changing. Last wants to come in on that one. Personal contracts for me. So it's not like a like nobody likes lies and nobody likes lazy people and all that kind of stuff. But for me, if we've got a deal where we've committed, I'm going to do this and you're going to do that, whether you're agency or whether you're part of my team or whether you're a client, doesn't really matter. If we have a deal that we're going to do one and one and you don't deliver, then the behaviour has to change. So it's all about output focus for me. Um, I've got Nick. <laughs> Two, I, I will not let my staff get uh, shouted at and yeah. treated badly by clients and I will happily go to a CEO or a CMO to request that person's removed or we won't work with them again. And I've done that more often than I want to. And I've walked away from a client once for it. And I think my personal one is I will never sell work I don't believe in. And I'd rather be humiliated because of time or anything else. And I've been in meetings where I'm going, I have to say, I'm, I'm, I don't think we've done enough or we haven't gone hard enough. I'm scared sometimes when the client thinks it's good and we don't or someone in my own team thinks it's good and it's not. I'm never going to sell work I don't believe in. I can't do it. I can't fake it. And it's just a waste Kira, of time. Where do you draw the line? I, I think um, it's probably the same thing I tell my 11-year-old daughter. It's that any time that you feel like you're being compromised or you're feeling uncomfortable, you don't go near it. So it's got a lot to do with your personal values. And if you think that you're compromising those, then there's a 99 to 100% chance mm. that you are compromising yeah. them. Um, similarly, I've resigned clients um, um because they uh, haven't uh, been aligned with our values, and um, you know, and that's disappointing. But it's also it's also fantastic uh, to stand stand up for something. And if you can't stand up for your teams and your own personal yeah. integrity, then you know, what do you got left, really? Brand. I've got a really simple line. It's being a good dad, um, and that's <clears> the one line I'll never cross. Whether it's a work trip and I'll miss something that's important to them, or whether it's some feeling the jobs take me away from being a good dad. 
And also it's like I want to make work that they don't think is lame. So <laughs> that's it for me. That's the line I will never cross. Okay, next uh, next spin, please, Richard. Wheel of truth. Oh, five. Five. What was the worst day of your professional <sighs> career? I'll go. So, <laughs> I, was, uh, I was April the 8th, 2015. It was my birthday and I was in Mexico. Um, and uh, I was CEO of Sachin Sachin York at the time. Um, that was the toughest job I've ever had. Sachin Sachin was a great agency to run in 1983, not such a great agency to run in 2015, um, pitching against Droga 5 and Wyden Kennedy, and it was pretty hard. Um, and I had to do a lot of hard stuff. Nick used the word heartbreaking before. I had to do a lot of heartbreaking stuff. And I fired a guy, um, one of those digital guys who's lovely but does nothing. Um, so... so um, <laughs> Anyway, a all-staff email went out from someone called Vox Saatchi um, to all-staff at Saatchi York saying what a horrible leader I am, how Saatchi's a sinking ship, it's mm. all my fault, um, how I need to be fired immediately, uh, all sorts of stuff, super defaming. And then, and then that gets leaked to Agency Spy, which is worse than Campaign Brief. Um, and I got a, like character assassination like never seen. Um, and I was on holiday in Mexico and the global CEO calls me because he's seen it. <laughs> so that was the worst. That was the worst day of my career. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to say. Oh, look, I, I, we were in a difficult situation with a very, very, very big client, and it doesn't matter who it is and what category it was. Um, but we both shared it, Brent. Um, and we thought we're hand in hand with a client. And um, after the last meeting, before we were going to present to the CEO, three or four days later, the senior client who was new to an organization and six months prior we got a nine out of ten and got the best score for agency and client relationship anywhere in the world out of like 150 clients agency client scores uh he said oh this is really interesting but i'm not going to stand next to you when you present it to my c-suite because uh, i just wanted to hedge my bets and i've asked two other agencies to turn up one hour and two hours after you um and that was really difficult to take so we that that afternoon, we resigned the account, and I had to let 20 people go that day. Mm. Uh, and I was at the pub with them all, um, and that was horrific. I hope I never, ever, ever have to do that again. There's things we do differently. I'm not blaming the client. That's not what this is about. Um, you have to take accountability and shared responsibility. I've never had someone do that. Um, I don't think it's the organization. I think it's a person. Um, but it was an unattainable situation we just didn't want to be part of, but that cost 20 people their job, but had to do it. James. This is why people don't stay in advertising. <laughs> yes. So old ages. <laughs> Days like that. Um, I think this conversation goes along as, a, as the potential becoming quite Monty Python-esque, doesn't it, in terms of <laughs> cardboard box on the side of the motorway. Um, I'm just deciding which way I'm going to go, actually. Um, I think sort of like personally, professionally, um, a young guy, 29, I'd given up a really good job in, in London. Probably the first ever person to resign in London in the mid-90s. I was a PhD at the time, really interested in business that started going three years before. It's probably the only person in that, in that decade to resign to go and work in China. I remember looking on David Patterson's kind of face, China, like they have an agency. And I went there to be the media director of Saatchi and Saatchi in 94. And a couple of days later, or a couple of months later, I'm sitting in a hotel lobby in Hong Kong, 
the weekend before I'm going into uh, into China, and we had basically one client. It's ninety five percent of our buildings at the time P and G, soon to become massive. And uh, the person who's hired me, the CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi, has sat me down, welcomed me to uh, Hong Kong. He says, "Look, we're going to uh, Guangzhou on a Monday. Uh, let me just sort of update you on the situation." Yeah, brilliant. Okay, I'm I'm ready. Um, so um, uh, you know they uh, put us on review. Mm, no. No, 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 I didn't. Um, how long ago did they uh, put us on review? Uh, uh, well, they put us on review about a year ago uh, for uh, six months. I went, and what happened? We've survived again? It goes, uh, no, uh, we got zero out of five. And, uh, zero is not good and five is brilliant. Go, yeah. Um, but there was nowhere else to give the business to because there's no other agencies yet, so they've rolled it over again. It's like... Okay, so we've got another six six months starting now. No, that that started three and a half months ago. Right. Okay, so we've got ten weeks left to save the business and my job and everything. Yeah. So what have you done since then? Hired you. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember at that time thinking, oh, what am I, what am I going to do? I mean, I, could, I haven't unpacked. I'm just going. Maybe that's why they bought me a one-way ticket or whatever. Oh. Uh, but at the same, I just thought, well, what the hell? I'm 29. No one else is going to be working in China in the mid-90s. What's the worst thing that can go wrong? I know they might blame me if that is the case, but if it does work, then brilliant. Anyway, like a few months later, we'd sort of like sorted it out, and we're getting letters from the great CEOs or Sarge's in the early 90s, and it was all very good. And that sort of like that three years in China... Probably, you know, I still bear the scars, but it was probably the most prominent sort of like period of my career. Thank goodness for a happy ending towards <laughs> the end of the session. Kim. Um, so I remember the date as well. It was November 14, 2001. Um, I had just given birth two days after. And at the time, I was the head running planning for a creative agency in New York. And so my and I didn't know what I was doing with this new baby. I just was hoping I wouldn't kill it. Um, you know, so a bit nervous. And two days after she was born, I get a call from my boss and I thought, oh, this is really, this is really sweet. Um, <laughs> you're amazing. Um, so congratulating me on the birth and letting me know that they understood that I would be under pressure and that it would take more of my time to look after a baby. So the great news was they were providing me with some support which was a replacement. Oh, wow. So they made me redundant two days after. And then, and then it was even worse, actually, because I'd built the team and they said, look, your team's going to be really upset that, you know, we've made this decision. So would you come back as a consultant for a couple of weeks and sort of bed down the new head of planning? Did you? No, I told them to fuck off. <laughs> I'm done. And I don't know. They're, they're pretty. They're pretty um, tough to beat. I was working. I left. I left. Um, I went to London when I was 26. A long time ago. Went over there for six months and stayed for 14 years. But I went. What I didn't plan on doing when I got to London was um, it being the middle of a, a time where you couldn't get any work at all. Uh, at least, let alone a 26-year-old, you know, Australian. So I ended up taking this do- job. 
at an agency that I knew was dodgy. Not dodgy, but just not quite pucker. But I just knew that I had to pay the rent. <laughs> so um, for all of the, those of you who have seen Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, yeah. so, you know, the, 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 the gangster scenes, that's where I worked, <laughs> down, at, uh, <laughs> down at London Bridge, so just near Barrow Market, in an old banana warehouse. Just gets better, doesn't it? <laughs> and... Um, and then I got to a couple of months and I realised that they didn't have the money to pay pay me. So not only had I joined a really dodgy firm, they obviously didn't have their uh, books in order and it was getting to Christmas time. So it is sounding like a Monty Python living in a cardboard <laughs> box. Um, and I remember thinking, this is really quite dire. Um, anyway, and I remember <laughs> being quite outraged and I demanded that they give me the 300 quid that was in the petty cash because um, <laughs> I thought, what, I've got to do something resor- I was resourceful. And that's what I did. And I managed to, uh, through an, a great Aussie mate of mine, get another interview probably about a month later. But I think I probably survived on 300 quid in London for three months. Wow. Um, so that would be my, um, that was my woes me story, yeah. but I think yours wins. Yeah, James, James has one final point, which is going to make in less than 15 seconds. Yeah, what could have been the worst day in my career was in my first week in a new agency, striding purposefully uh, into the bathroom, uh, locking the door, sitting down, um, and then hearing a couple of people come in, um, female voices, and, <laughs> and realising... Me too, me too. <laughs> realising I was sitting in the ladies' toilet. And on that bombshell, (laughs) that is almost where we have to finish. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to thank our speakers. Firstly, I need one more thing from you. We need to take a vote on truth, most of the truth, none of the truth. So show of hands, have you heard all of the truth? I see a few hands, thank you. Have you heard most of the truth? (laughs) That's very generous, a lot of hands. Or have you heard none of the truth? I can see no hands at all. That's very, very kind. Now, for those listening to the Mumbrella cast, thank you for listening and toodle here. For now, though, please join me in thanking the fantastic Richard Reed, along with Kim, Kieran, Brent, Nick and James. Well done.